As you guys know, we are in our Throne of David series. We, it's already the end of July, which to me feels kind of crazy. We're in August. We are deep in summer and also in our series. So we have been exploring the different whys behind why God would establish his throne on the name of David. Um, we're coming off of that prophecy in Isaiah talking about the throne that will be established on the name of Jesus, on da- the name of David, which is the throne of Jesus. So we're watching David's life, going through the Psalms and stories of his life, and seeing what that means. Why would God do that? What is it about his character? Because we want that for ours too. We want those clues as to what the kingdom of God is up to that we see in the life of David. So you guys know the last couple weeks, we talked about a heart of worship and what worship like looked like in David's life. And I think those weeks have been super special because that's one in our church that I see as just a defining trait already. It's been so cool. I think even tonight is testimony of that, of what God is doing in each of us to develop this heart of worship. So, so cool. If you guys missed any of the last two weeks, go back and listen to those. We've talked about what it looks like to enjoy his presence and to live unshakable, about fearless faith and friendship with God. And it's been a summer, I know for me, of kind of stepping back with each, um, each examination of David's life and saying, oh, okay, does mine look like that? Am I after God's kingdom or am I after my own kingdom? And it's been, I know for me, super growing and super helpful. And also I think a lot of the time just super restful to be like, oh, all these things that God did in David are works of his spirit and that we get to say, okay, I just want more of his presence. I want more of him. And then in my life, I'm gonna see these things that we're seeing in David, which has been so cool. And so I'm excited today to keep going with you guys. And I hope you are too. And I invite you with me to look again at the throne of David and to see another definer of his character, another reason that God would build his kingdom on that name, on that throne. So if you guys want to open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 14. And as you guys are flipping there, kind of to set a little bit of where we're popping into the story, we're kind of jumping into the middle of an ongoing story as the ark is being brought to Jerusalem. We see King David, and he's established Jerusalem as the political capital of Israel, but he doesn't want to stop there. He wants it to be the spiritual capital for the people of Israel, that Jerusalem would be the place where they would go to engage the presence of God. And that's why he needs the ark to come to Jerusalem. Because the ark is what holds the presence of God at this time. So where the ark is, the presence of God is. And so David has been wanting this, longing for it. And they've been trying to get it. They battled the Philistines. They tried to bring it once. Didn't work. Somebody died in the process. But now they're bringing it into the city. And we enter in that moment of celebration where they're rejoicing. They're saying, the ark is here. It's come. David especially is saying, this is what I've been waiting for, the presence of God in Jerusalem. So as we look at verse 14, I want you guys just to have that in the back of your minds, that we are entering a celebration, we are entering a time where the presence of God is coming into Jerusalem and seeing the reaction to that. So if you guys will read with me verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I should be held in honor." And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So, big chunk of text. I know a lot to go through here. But one thing I want to focus on is this overarching story of passion that we see here. There are stories of passion all over our literature, our TV, our history books. And they make us feel inspired. Sometimes they scare us. Passion can define people's whole entire lives. or They can define a pivotal moment in history. There's, um, as I was kind of just reading different stories of passion that we can see, like throughout history, there was one that stood out to me in um, its book called The Barbarian Way. And this story is actually a lot of places, so you might have heard it before. But it's about a king named Robert the Bruce. Um, he died in 1329 at the age of 54. But right before his death, Robert the Bruce requested that his heart be removed from his body and taken on crusade by a worthy knight. And it's kind of gross, but I think that the point here is that the king could see, okay, a people that is close to the heart of their king will go further for love of him. And so before he dies, he had his friend James Douglas, who was sitting by him, say, okay, I'm going to take this on. He took the responsibility, and the heart of Robert the Bruce was embalmed. It was put in a small container, and Douglas would carry it with him to every battle that he went into. I think I have a slide of these two. Yeah, there they are. This is probably the moment right after they had the conversation. That's probably why Douglas looks a little like weird, but he's, he's going to take, take the heart of Robert the Bruce and take it with him into battle. Also, Robert, good mustache. It's nice. So in every battle that he fought, he carried this heart of the king. It's pressed against his chest. And in the early spring of 1330, this is kind of the famous battle. Douglas sailed from Scotland to Spain, and he engaged in a campaign against the Moors, of which it was one of those battles where you're midway through and you say, there's no way. There's nothing that we can do. We are going to lose. They found themselves surrounded and death seemed imminent. And in that moment, Douglas reaches for the heart that's on his chest and he throws it into his enemies and he cries, fight for the heart of your king. And everybody follows him into battle. One historian quotes Douglas as shouting at that moment, forward brave heart as ever thou were wont to do and Douglas will follow his king's heart or die. This motto of Douglas um, to which the present Duke belongs, so still today the motto of that family is simply forward. Passion can drive a fight. Passion can propel a story and passion can leave a legacy. Passion is what spurs innovation for people to give themselves to an idea to better the world, or it's what authors can spend their lives working on a work that's going to shape culture so they give all themselves to it, or it leaves people to leave their family and their homes because they are so passionate about a dream. And there's all kinds of passionate people, the ones in the stories we admire and we fear, but the kind of passion that we're seeing here, 
that we're seeing in 2 Samuel is a passion that's of greatest value. And it's a passion to see God's kingdom come. It's a passion for his presence. And this is what David is embodying. He's pointing us toward another reason that God would establish his kingdom on the throne of David. It is a passion for God's presence. Let's look at verse 14, the start of our text. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So the very first thing we'll see is that David is wearing a linen ephod. I remember one time I heard this text taught when I was in high school, and this was the focus, was whether or not David was worshiping in his underwear. And so we went through that for a long time. I actually studied that a lot this week, and commentators can't agree. Um, Some would say that David is only wearing a linen ephod, which, contrary to popular belief, wasn't technically underwear. It's part of the priestly garment. And then other commentators would say, no, it's just a part of what he was wearing. The main purpose... um, of that very first text being to many, that it was simply saying, David took the garment of a priest and put it on himself. He decided, oh, I'm not gonna be in my kingly attire, I'm gonna take on the identity of the priest as the um, ark comes into the city. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here because again, the text doesn't spell it out for us why he was wearing that or what he was wearing exactly. Um, And I think that what comes next is a lot more important for us. And maybe he also was just wearing it so he could dance better, I don't know. But we do see that he decides, I am going to minister to the presence of God. And then the next part of this is what we really want to look at, is that David was dancing before the Lord, this part here, with all his might. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, holding nothing back. Everything he had given was in that moment. His body, his mind, his soul was there to show devotion to the presence of God, to celebrate the coming of God's presence. And this is our definition of someone of passion, is someone who is giving of all of their might, all of their mind, body, soul to a cause. Here, David is saying, I'm giving my passion, all of me, to the presence of God. And that that phrase is kind of reminiscent of those other examples. It's reminiscent of those who would fight for their king with everything they have, or they'd create with everything they'd have, or they'd dream. But the heart of David is one where with all his might he worshiped. With everything he had, he danced before the Lord. He didn't look to his right or his left and try to see, okay, are the people like into it? Do they think this is a good idea? No, he danced because he saw the presence of God is here and it is worth me (laughs) giving everything that I have. He couldn't hold back because he was there for one thing and the approval of people wasn't what he was there for. God is after a throne that's established on passion for his presence and all other passions don't compare. And as the ark is being brought into the city, this passion is expressed with dancing. This great arrival, this victory, the presence of God in Jerusalem. To David, this is worth everything. The presence is everything. And he's not just thinking it or talking about it. He is embodying it with his movement. And let's look at verse 16. It's he and all Israel. The presence of God produces passion in his people. It produces celebration. It's the willingness of the collective to all say, yes, this is worth it. We agree. So David, worshiping with everything that he had, led to his people being able to do the same. When we decide that the presence of God is worth everything that we have, that he's worth our passion, that he's our one desire, it invites the people around you to participate. Every one of you in here who has said yes to the kingdom of God are invited to leave everything else and to live with passion. And when you do, you invite the world to participate in your celebration. 
it's here that I think I need to stop and say how much I enjoy worshiping with you guys, St. Hill. I think as I was writing this message, I was thinking about you guys, I was like, it's so true of you guys. I can lift my eyes during worship and look around and say, oh, there is people that could care less about anyone around them. They're after his heart. They want to minister to him. And I want you to know that when you do that in worship, you strengthen me, that I can look around and be like, oh, yeah, he's worth it. Oh, yeah, this is so good. This is where we want to be. This is the presence that we are after. And I think the next step for a people like that, for a people like us, for a people like St. Hill, is that as people of faith, as people of passion and worship, that we would take it outside of this place. That it would be something where it's not, okay, I see my passion for worship in a Sunday sanctuary, but that we would get to be a people who go to our work, to our neighbors, to our friends, and that we are people known by passionate devotion for Jesus. And that in that, in your passion, as you go out into your day and people can see it written all over you, they are invited into the same thing. They're invited into the same journey. The call of people that are passionate about his presence is that the kind of worship you would leave this room, you would invite the world to participate in. That as people of faith, anticipation would be present in our passion. That we would be people, so how Israel anticipated the ark coming, they anticipated the ark coming to Jerusalem so they could celebrate it, we would be the same. That we would wake up in the morning as passionate followers of Jesus and say, oh, I'm gonna go spend time with the Lord and I'm anticipating him showing up and that I will get to celebrate his presence. That it would be the same thing that we're in our cars on our way to church and we would be bubbling with an anticipation of what God is gonna do in our midst, of what he's gonna do here. Because a person of passion is also a person of anticipation. They're a person who wants to see God show up, knows that he will, and so we are excited when we come to this place. We are excited when we are going to meet with him. We are excited when we invite him with prayer into our day because we believe he's gonna move. And those types of people are gonna undoubtedly have those who wanna join in that longing. They're gonna have people who want to know, okay, what is, why, why are you so passionate about this? Because I, I wanna learn about it too. And they wanna take part. Your life of passion is a living invitation. Now, in a perfect world, all the people that would see your passion, who would see a passion for the presence of God, would celebrate it and would say, oh, I do want to join in that. But we can see in verse 16 that that is not always the case. In verse 16, it reads, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from the window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. So this isn't just a stranger or like a bystander that was watching him. This is his wife. And she looks out her window, sees her husband, and despises him. Um, one commentator would describe her emotion this way, that she thought this mighty zeal of his for the ark of God and the transport of joy he was in upon its coming to him was but a foolish thing and unbecoming to so great a soldier and statesman and monarch as he was. Simply said, she looks out and says, that is no way for a king to look. And for her, she despises him because he doesn't look like a king. And as his wife, this is a reflection of her. So her pride keeps her from participating in celebration. Her cynicism keeps her from experiencing that same passion for the presence. Because all she can think about is how this is making her husband look, which in turn, how it's making her look. And this is always going to be true of passionate people. That as much as there will be those who celebrate them and stories that will be told of them and a legacy that is left, there is also going to be people around them who despise them in their hearts, who look at passion and want to denounce it, people who want to reduce passion or dismiss it. 
And I think it's worth it to take a step back and look in this text at the different responses to passion that we can see. I know for me, it was super helpful as I was reading through it to say, okay, how can we see people respond to David's passion and how do I respond to passion? Because I think we can kind of fit ourselves in these same categories. The first that I would see in the text is the partner. So we see the response of celebration in the people of Israel, that these people come alongside David and they are singing and they are dancing and they are excited and adding to the sound of worship. These people are partnering in passion. They saw a passion for the presence and they said, oh, I want that too. And it wasn't out of jealousy. It was out of knowing that they were able to participate and that what he was celebrating was worth it. Seeing passion doesn't lead to disdain for the partner because they understand how limitless God is. They understand that he's revealing himself through passionate worship of his people. And they will take part. They will celebrate other people. They will celebrate other people's passions. They will encourage them on and they will join in themselves. The second type that we see in the text is the response of the cynic. We see the cynicism in Michael, who, because of pride, can't take part in passion. The one who pulls from only what is logical and what people should be doing to influence decisions. The cynic may often think that they're even at people's aid for deterring passion. They'll choose to be cynical and then say, oh, yeah, that's right, if things go wrong, rather than be hopeful and risk being wrong themselves. We see another great example of this in the scriptures in Matthew 26, in the story of Jesus' anointing at Bethany. It reads, Now when Jesus was at Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This woman, overwhelmed by love and passionate devotion to Jesus, says, I'm going to express my love for you with everything that I have. And in this case, it was the value of the oil and the perceived dignity to those around her. She gave it in response to his presence. But the cynic responds, and probably with really good intention, with a question that would be seen as pretty moralistic to most people, of why this waste? To them, passion was a waste, but to Jesus, it was worship. According to Jesus, she was the only person in that room who rightly discerned the moment. The only person in the room who could see past their cynicism, could see past what they knew to be right, and see what he was worth. The cynic couldn't see beyond what they knew to be right to see what Jesus was up to. They would rather keep their good intentions or save face or keep what they knew to be right rather than go where the spirit was going and have the potential to be seen as doing wrong by other people. The disciples are actually the cynics of that story and they're the closest people to Jesus. I don't think that they were being cynics out of malice or being cynics because they just wanted to tear somebody down. I think it's because they'd spent so much time with Jesus and under his teaching that they just thought they had it right. They thought they knew what his response would be, but they didn't ask him. They were so familiar with Jesus that they let his beauty become boring, that such a passionate response from this woman seemed unwarranted. It seemed like a waste. Brendan Manning puts it this way um, in one of his books. He says, 
because we approach the gospel with preconceived notions of what it should say rather than what it does say, the word no longer falls like rain on the parched ground of our souls. It no longer sweeps like a storm into the corners of our comfortable piety. It no longer vibrates like sharp lightning in the dark recesses of our non-historic orthodoxy. The gospel becomes, in the words of Gertrude Stein, a pattering of pious platitudes spoken by a Jewish carpenter in the distant past. Being the cynic isn't always out of malice or jealousy or even pride. Being the cynic can come from being so sure that we're right that we forget to stop and ask his spirit where he's going. It's when we let pride manifest itself to the point where even in good things like giving to the poor and knowing the scriptures and protecting someone that we love, we decide that God can't be doing something there that makes us uncomfortable because we already know what he would do. The cynic would rather be sure of themselves than risk in the kingdom. The third um, type that we see in this passage is kind of the unforeseen type in the subscript of the story, but um, it's the apathist, which I had to look that up to make sure that's a word, but it is. Someone who shows apathy. The apathist is the one who, they might not be reprimanding or even having cynical thoughts, but they also aren't celebrating or willing to demonstrate passion. The apathist is the man who is watching the city of Israel or city of Jerusalem, go through with the ark and they're excited about the presence of God and he opens his window and he sees them and goes, hmm, and like goes back to doing his day thing. That's the apathist. He decides to close his window and go back to routine. And they don't have anything bad to say about the passion. They just are content to be on the sidelines. They're content to not take part in it. They would rather not have their comfort disturbed by passion. And Notice that the apathist, um, they don't even make the story. They aren't going to hear Jesus say, oh, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, your name will also be told in your memory. They're not going to be those who are inviting other people to come celebrate. They're going to be those who may be able to watch it happen, but for the most part, aren't going to take part. And if you're sitting here tonight and thinking, uh, it doesn't sound so bad. Like, I'm kind of content to like, be where I am, let other people carry the torch, let others like take the risk, and then, I mean, if good stuff happens, cool. But I challenge you to ask for discontentment with apathy, that tonight a desire would well up in all of us for more, because the thing about passionate people, and we've talked about it tonight, about people who partner, is that they stay hungry. And our desire for this church is that we would always be hungry. That's my desire for myself, that I would always be hungry, and for each of you, that we would always be hungry. And I think with each of these different types of people, we probably can each relate to part. Maybe we relate fully more with one. I know for me, I was thinking through these um, and kind of was resonating the most with one and definitely wasn't the one that I wanted. But I think the, the cynic resonated this week with me in like a pretty painful way, just in the fact where I was like, Oh, that resonates with me. That sucks. And talking to my husband, we've kind of been admitting to each other this week, and now I'm admitting to you, so be gracious with me, that we can tend to the cynical in our daily lives. I said this to our friends, Philip and Abby, yesterday. Well, they aren't here, and Philip goes, oh, yeah, you guys are cynical. And I'm like, dang it. <laughs> Confirmed. <laughs> but even when it's like, oh, that movie, uh, no, no movie's that good. No restaurant's that good. No person's really that good. And I think for us, those are like the really surface levels of it. But beyond that, I can, we can see the effects of cynicism robbing us of passion and of celebrating what other people are doing. 
because that's what it does. But the good news that God was speaking to me this week as I was kind of like mulling through all that is, and it's good news for anyone that can relate to the cynic, is that you are not the cynic. That as followers of Jesus, we are all in the partners category. He has called us co-heirs to a kingdom that is made on passionate devotion. The apathy that we see in ourselves or the cynicism that we see in ourselves, the good news is that we are having it brought to our attention so that he can work it out of us. The good news is that he's bringing it to our attention so he can teach us even more about our identity in him, so that he can teach us even more about what it looks like when we get in his presence, that he can teach us that we are passionate, devoted worshipers of God, and that he builds in us his spirit and his attributes. And so that realization isn't a defeat, and it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be something to bring us down. It's meant to be something so we can let his spirit work in us, so that we can say, okay, yeah, I see it. Now let's, let's work it. Let's work it out. Let's be people who are partners because that's who God has called us to be and as a church who is defined by passionate devotion. And those people, the partners, the passionate, devoted worshipers, they bless the world. Let's look at verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. So David, he gets in the presence of the Lord. He sees his passion overflow. And then what happens with it? He goes and he gives it away. As king, he goes and he says, I'm going to bless my people. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you gifts. I'm going to send you home full of hope and excitement, and that you will also be seeing why it's so good to be in the presence of God. A really easy indicator that you've encountered someone who is passionate about the presence is that you leave feeling blessed. I hope that every week you guys get to come into this house and that you leave feeling like you were blessed whether it's by an interaction or a word or just that overflow from worship. And I think one of the ways that we'll know that the culture of our church, that the culture of this house is impacting Newburgh, is that we are going to see people who leave homes, leave businesses, leave their school day, and that they'll be like, I'm feeling blessed. I just had my day in Newburgh, and I met people who just blessed me for no reason. And whether they know the name of Jesus or not yet, they're going to be able to point and say, there are people full of something that they just give away. They just give, and they're always giving. And we will be a people who've given ourselves to the worship of God with all of our might, given ourselves to his worship so much, and his presence so much, that we just become a people of blessing. And that's when blessing, too, isn't something that we have to think about or we conjure or we go out and we think, okay, how could I, which this is fun sometimes to just think about how to bless people, but it's not necessarily you go in your day and you think, okay, how am I going to bless this person, this person, this person? It is a natural outflow of the life of a passionate worshiper of Jesus to be a blessing to people they come in contact with. So David, he leaves blessing of all the people. He blesses his city and says, hey, the presence of God is here. Be blessed, be excited. And he goes home. So imagine how excited he is, and he is still like welling up with this joy of like, yes, the ark is finally here, the presence of God. I'm so excited. I blessed the world, and now I'm going to go home, and I'm going to bless my family. And he goes, and he has it for them, and he goes for the door, and his wife meets him before he goes inside. And she says, verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, 
how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. So remember, first time we saw Michael, she was despising him in her heart. Michael has now had time to stew. She has been home thinking about how mad she is, and so when she saw him, she was ready. She had her ammo ready to go, and she was, she was ready to shoot. So she has let her own thoughts feed her. She's let her anger build to this point where she is ready to implode on her husband who's coming home. Can you imagine how different Michael's monologue that we just read would have been had she taken what she felt and put it in the face of truth? If she'd gotten with God and asked him to shape her reaction. When we let our anger create our inner dialogue, everybody loses. David loses because he came home to a wife who'd worked herself to this place where she couldn't celebrate the presence of God coming. She couldn't celebrate her husband's joy or his victory. And Michael loses out because David was coming home to bless them. She gets no blessing because she met him at the door with the anger she'd been holding. And so she misses out on not only blessing, but the ability to be a partner. The ability to partner in that joy that's after the presence. So what could have been this moment of shared celebration unfolds as a moment that's going to define their futures. Look at verse 21 with me. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from this house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. So for Michael, it gave her a future as barren. Alex um, made a cool observation about this when we talked at our staff meeting, which I think Jake made to him, so credit to both of them for this. Um, That in the old covenant, a woman's ability to bear children was her fruit. That was her fruit to bear. That was her fruit to give to the world. But in the new covenant, the fruit that we bear is the fruit of the spirit. Michael's cynicism led to barrenness, while our cynicism leads to less fruit of the spirit in our lives. God moves with the faith of his people. He doesn't move to prove the cynic wrong. He wants to partner with us for the renewal of the world, and he honors hope, faith, love, gentleness, self-control, He honors people who are after him, who put their whole hope in him with the fruits of his character, with that fruit to give to the world. And may our futures be defined by that fruit. Decide today that we want to be partners, that cynicism isn't going to steal the fruit of our future. It's not worth it. Even if the world around us is saying, oh, yeah, there's a lot to be cynical about, it doesn't matter. We follow the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he has plenty to give and no reason for cynicism. This moment was also a defining moment for David's future. And I'm so impressed by his response, by the sureness of identity that David has in this moment. He just says, here's who God told me that I am, and I'm gonna celebrate in his presence. He doesn't stop celebrating. He doesn't say, oh yeah, you're right. I'm gonna like go send the ark back. No, he says, I will continue to praise God. David, knowing his identity, gave him the freedom to follow God's spirit wherever it would go. It gave him the freedom to dance in his presence, and it gave him the freedom to say, no, this is who I am. But he doesn't stop there, because in verse 22, he keeps going. He says, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. 
David's worship led to the presence of God defining his whole future ministry, that he said, oh, just wait and see. In a conversation where she came to degrade his passion, to steal it away, to say, oh, you should feel bad, he responds with, you haven't seen anything yet. He trusts the transforming power of God to the point that he knows that the more time he spends in his presence, the more time he spends getting to know God, the more undignified he will become. Meaning that the more time I spend looking into the eyes of God, the less time I spend caring about what I look like to anybody else. The more time that I say, oh, I'm going to get with him and I'm going to see what he says about me, the less I think about what anybody else does. And that is what defines his passion. He is stating that his ministry is going to be defined by this passion for the presence, that he will continue to give all that he has to minister to the heart of God. And what I love about David in this is that it just, like, it sounds crazy, Upon first reading for a king to say, oh yeah, I'm gonna like be more undignified. I'm gonna humiliate myself. You're like, that does not sound good. He's saying that I am a king who is going to be undignified, humiliated. Because, maybe that's not a great future on paper, but he is so sure of God's character. He is so sure of who God is to be that he can say, I could care less what I look like as long as I look more like him. And it can look and it can sound unreasonable and it can look and it can sound foolish, but it is the loss of self that enables him to be passionate in the name of someone that's so much better. And this is the same king who walked on to a battlefield where everyone logical was saying, okay, Goliath, this big, you, this big, not gonna happen. But he responds with, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He says, I don't care about size. I don't care about what anybody around me has to say. I know who God is, so I'm going to go forward. And we see David's brother in that story. He gets angry, too. He plays the part of the cynic, and he couldn't help being, like, infuriated. He's like, you're being unreasonable. But David's faith in who God was was so secure that he could look in the eyes of God and press forward rather than looking in the eyes of a giant and back down. David sounded crazy to the armies of Israel, but he pressed on because he was sure of who God was. And that sounding unreasonable to others didn't faze him, didn't faze his mission, because his passion was for God's presence. And David's God, our God, can also sound pretty unreasonable to the ears of the world. David serves a God who proclaims, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And even blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What? That seems so backwards. It seems so illogical. It doesn't make sense. Yes, that's right. Because the ways of God will often not make sense to the world. So if we spend our time trying to make sense to them instead of being with him, we're wasting it. And what is true is not always logical. Those with a passionate devotion to the kingdom of God will live with values that sometimes do seem illogical because they've seen and they've tasted of values of his kingdom that are true and beautiful regardless of a world's response. And the unreasonable, beautiful, wonderful truth that calls for all of our devotion is that we follow a God who not only created us to walk in step with him, to partner in the ruling of creation. He is a God who, when we didn't choose him, but we chose ourselves instead, he put a plan into action to redeem us. He said, okay, you didn't want me, so I'm gonna give all of me that first, that first act of passion that with all of his might, he loved us. 
and he died for us, for the sins of a world, to defeat death so that we could again be partners in celebration, partners in his presence. This is unreasonable love. But this is the love of God who is in a relentless pursuit of his created ones. He's offering us again that we get to co-reign with him in a kingdom defined in part by passionate devotion because his kind of love asks for nothing less. And I think that is the whole reason why we can now stand and say, oh, I'm passionate about the presence. It's because he was first passionate for us.